You're listening to Word on Health, the report with its finger on the pulse of popular medicine with Paul Pennington. Word on Health, for your very best of health. Whilst COVID-19 has discouraged a great many of us from travelling to our favourite European sunspots, dietary experts are encouraging us, for the sake of our waistlines and our health, to bring the Mediterranean to Britain through our dinner plates. Sue Beish is from the British Dietetic Association. There's been some really big studies that have been done, and it seems like the nearer your diet matches the Mediterranean diet, the more healthy you are. What we should be doing is trying to eat a rainbow of different colour fruit and veg. It doesn't have to be just fresh, though. It can be things like dried or frozen or canned as well. So Sue, what about meat and fish? Meat's fine, it's a good source of iron and protein. The problem is we in this country have a lot of the very fatty food like pork pies or sausages or burgers, whereas in the Mediterranean they tend to have much leaner cuts. So it's looking for the bits of the meat that's red and cutting off the bit that's white and then going for fewer of those processed meat products. Oily fish is a really good part of the Mediterranean diet and that's another reason why they seem to suffer from less heart disease. So the recommendations are to have two portions of fish a week, one of which should be oily. And by oily we mean things like sardines pilchard, salmon, trout, herrings, mackerel, that sort of thing. And again, they can be fresh or smoked or frozen canned are just as good as well. And the fats that you cook with are important, aren't they? If you think about the sort of fats that they use in the Mediterranean, it's things like olive oil. Well, rapeseed oil, interestingly, is quite common. So it's monounsaturated fats rather than saturated. Putting you in the picture, this is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. It's estimated 190,000 migraine attacks take place every day in the UK, with a person living with migraine enduring attacks on average 13 times a year. Despite improved understanding of migraine and the availability of new treatments, research shows the majority of people living with it never consult their GP about their suffering. Professor Anne McGregor is a migraine specialist at Bart's Health NHS Trust in London. People who are having migraine attacks quite often find that light bothers them, smells bother them. They're disabled in the sense they can't carry out their usual daily activities. They'll usually last anything from part of a day up to three days. They tend to be slightly shorter and sharper in men rather than women, which is perhaps the reason why men are less likely to seek help. A lot of the problems are that migraine is not recognised by the person who's experiencing the attack. They think they've just got a sick headache or quite often they think they've got recurrent sinus problems. A lot of the attacks that they have tend to be more in their relaxing time. Therefore they tend to bother about them less because they're not losing time from work and it's only when the attacks sort of tend to creep into the working week or partner gets fed up with yet another weekend ruined that they'll start doing something about it. Professor McGregor, do we understand what causes migraine and can it be cured? Migraine is caused by an extra sensitivity within the brain so that the normal stimuli like a bright lights, loud sounds or other changes if people aren't getting enough sleep or they're not eating enough, these are sufficient to set off changes within brain chemistry that we think in some ways actually then protect the brain because if somebody does have a migraine attack they want to hide away from stimuli in a quiet darkened room. They will always have the ability to have a migraine attack, but they can be cured in the sense that they don't have to have attacks, either by finding out or identifying trigger factors, making sure that they're drinking plenty of water, they're getting adequate amounts of sleep, they're eating regularly and not skipping meals. Once they start getting the symptoms of attack, if they treat it quickly with an effective treatment, then that can stop it continuing. And if they're getting frequent migraine attacks, then sometimes preventative treatments that they can get on prescription can also stop them suffering, if you like, from the migraine. And as migraine patient advocate Joanna Hamilton-Colton
Holclough explains there are ways to reduce the burden of migraine. It's very important that you develop your own migraine management plan and you need to do that with a GP or with a pharmacist or with a neurologist or with a specialist nurse specifically for you. Managing these symptoms wisely, making sure that they're finding out what their triggers are, keeping a diary, making sure that they're not dehydrated, that they're sleeping well. It doesn't make their migraine go away, but it means that their migraine attacks become less frequent. With the right medication, they reduce the frequency and the longevity of the attacks. This is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. Research carried out by the Oral Health Foundation found tongue piercings are particularly popular, with 43% of people with oral piercings opting for them. A third had a lip pierced, and 13% of those polled with oral piercings had more than one. The charity wants everyone who has or is considering getting an oral piercing to fully understand the risks associated with them and take the necessary steps to avoid the health problems which they're related to. Dr Nigel Carter, OBE, is CEO of the Oral Health Foundation. The worry that we have at the moment is that it seems in certain areas that people are seeing a lip piercing, a tongue piercing, as very similar to just having your ear pierced, and it really is very different indeed. Nigel, the act of getting an oral piercing in itself is very dangerous, as if done incorrectly, it can cause issues such as permanent numbness of the tongue, blood loss, excessive swelling, which affects breathing and swallowing, and an increased risk of HIV and hepatitis B. If you are thinking of getting an oral piercing, you should only get these type of procedures undertaken by a trained and licensed practitioner, and if you do, you must strictly follow the aftercare advice that they should provide. The tissue in the mouth doesn't heal in the same way as the tissue of a pierced ear. If you're looking at something like a piercing through the tongue or the lip, it will never be completely healed in the way that an ear piercing is. So you've always got the possibility of ongoing infection. And if you are going to have an oral piercing, it's really extremely important that you take extra good care of the hygiene around it so that you don't get any of these infective issues. We've got huge amounts of bacteria in the mouth and we're opening up a way for them to get into the bloodstream and cause all sorts of problems. Finally, Nigel, I understand if you are able to remain infection-free, there are other problems that oral piercings can create. A lot of piercings, people play with them, they chew them, and leads to a lot of broken teeth. You're listening to Word on Health, the report with its finger on the pulse of popular medicine, with Paul Pennington. Word on Health, for your very best of health. Recent research suggests that three out of five people living with chronic conditions have sought to use herbal or natural products to try and give conventional medicine a helping hand. Worryingly, just over a third wouldn't think to check whether any herbal preparations they took may interact with any other medications they've been prescribed. And equally concerning, just over 50% hadn't first sought any form of professional advice on the use of these herbal preparations and wouldn't think to mention their usage to their GP. Dee Atkinson is from the National Institute of Medical Herbalists. Herbal medicine can be practiced very safely, very effectively in the correct hands. People saying, oh, herbal medicine is natural and it's safe and they should start to treat themselves. And that's often where people find herbs are not successful. 
because they read up in books and they try to acquire various potions that they mix up themselves and they're not really understanding the science of herbal medicine. The other misconception that people have is that you just don't get side effects from herbs. Well, you can get side effects from herbs. Dee, I know your association would always advocate that if people are looking to herbal medicine, rather than trust the internet and self-prescribe, they should recruit the aid of a fully qualified and accredited medical herbalist. In doing our research looking for a suitably qualified practitioner, what are the credentials we should be looking for and what would be the approach of the practitioner on a first consultation? They should ask if they're a member of a professional body, the National Institute of Medical Herbalists or the College of Practitioners of Phytotherapy. Those are the two main Western herbal bodies in the UK. Members of these bodies have undergone training at degree level. We have continual professional development. We're also properly insured, which is very important. You should expect the practitioner to go through your current medical history, your presenting complaints. They will look at all the medicines you're taking at the moment. They'll probably go through your lifestyle and diet. If they might decide to do further medical examinations, you might be asked to go and have some blood tests taken. And it really depends on what your problem is. It's very in-depth. Then the herbalist will work up a treatment plan. Then you'll be asked to come back to have a follow-up assessment. I understand in a growing number of instances, medical herbalists integrate their approach with what's perceived as conventional medicine and would always advocate if patients are on existing medication that they talk to their doctors about the use of herbal medicine. And although private practitioners, the public can be assured that each accredited herbal medicine practitioner is working for their best interests and not to increase their bank balance. Hopefully the public have gone to see a member of the National Institute of Medical Herbalists or of the College of Practitioners of Phytotherapy. And those are professional practitioners and it would be against their code of ethics for them to do something like that. Putting you in the picture, this is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. Recent research suggests the vast majority of women think they're more likely to be affected by breast cancer than they are by heart disease, despite claiming the lives of over 47,000 women each year. Dr. Garda McHale is a consultant cardiologist at Northwest London Hospitals. Women think that it's a man's disease and therefore don't believe or think they will ever get heart disease. If you look at cardiovascular disease as a whole, that's disease of the heart, stroke, or disease of the blood vessels, it's killing almost nine times more women than breast cancer. In fact, in Europe, it's killing more women now than it is men. I understand that heart disease in women can present itself differently than the typical symptoms that we see in men. The classical symptom of a heart attack or angina is the crushing, central, tight chest pain going down the left arm. Women can present like that, but they can also present with very vague symptoms. They can have a little bit of jaw ache, shoulder pain, back pain, indigestion-like discomfort in the chest, a bit of nausea, a bit of fatigue, a bit of breathlessness. So because they also unaware that heart disease is their biggest risk, and because the symptoms are a bit vague in women, they tend to delay going to their doctor. Now, looking at studies from the past 10 years with the entire female population, it suggests that Asian women were the least concerned about the risk of developing heart disease. Asian people tend to have smaller, what we call coronary vessels, therefore more likely to have narrowings and more likely to develop blockages in the vessels. Asian people have more diabetes. And so it's a well-known fact that the Asian population are more at risk of developing heart disease. If left untreated, heart disease escalates, as we know, leaving women at a greater risk of premature death. Yet it's claimed that one in ten don't understand at all how to protect themselves from heart disease. Have your cholesterol checked, your blood sugar checked. If you're smoking, you need to stop smoking. You need to eat healthily and exercise. 
exercise regularly. If you have a family history of heart disease, if you have a mother's, father's, brother's, sister's, especially brother's, sister's, who developed heart disease at a young age, then you yourself could be at risk of developing heart disease. And you need to speak to your doctor about that and address all these risk factors at a young age because these risk factors build up and they increase your risk of developing heart disease at a later stage in life. Word on Health. On air and online 52 weeks of the year with Paul Pennington. Word on Health. Your personal prescription for your very best of health.